The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Uh, we have over 100 plus women away at the women's conference this weekend, so we'll pray for them in a minute for safe journeys. Report I've gotten back from my wife uh, is that things have gone really well there. So if you see some uh, Natalie dressed young people, you'll know it's the dads who came and brought them and uh, helped them out. So. Mark chapter 2 is uh, what we studied last week, and I'd like to review two verses with you, and then we'll spend all of our time studying Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it the new from the old, and a worse tear results. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Last week we saw that Jesus came not to reform the traditions of that day. He didn't come to be an appendage to what was going on. He didn't come to reform the religion of that day. He came to transform and he came to create something new, put new wine in new wineskins. And this morning we'll look at what are those new things. So I've entitled this morning's message, New Things, as we look at God's words together. Let's pray. Father, we gather together to honor you, to lift you up, to glorify you, to proclaim you among ourselves and the nations. And Lord Jesus, we come thanking you as we look at this, the new things that you've created. We're so grateful for, for allowing us to be part of it. And Spirit of God, we ask you now to guide us into all truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. New things. As you can imagine in my life, my world has been filled with many new things in the past five months. Some of you are new to our body uh, during the past five months. And uh, five months ago, I was diagnosed with a very serious eye cancer and had this eye taken out, prosthesis put in. And uh, when you have an eye replaced, depth perception becomes an issue. So I've had many things happen, new things happen as we're talking about the last five months. Some not so good as you can imagine, but some just downright funny, to be honest with you. I shared with you uh, over the summer one of the first new things that happened to me was playing ball with my grandkids for the first time. And as we played ball, I went to a t-ball game, actually, and uh, twin grandsons that played on that team, they're actually seven this month, it's hard, or next week, actually, it's hard to believe that. But uh, as, they were, as we were out there, we're gonna, I'm going to warm them up before the game, and uh, I got out there, and I'd not thrown a ball yet or caught a ball yet, and some of you remember this story, I shared it with you in the summer. Uh, I got across from them, and uh, Jackson threw the ball, and I was so focused. I mean, it's the first time anything's coming at me, and I was so focused, caught the ball, proud of myself, threw it back to Jackson. And he threw it again a second time. I wasn't quite as focused. When I put my glove up, that ball went sailing about three feet above it. Just gone. No depth perception at all. Next thing I hear Jackson hollering out, Papa Doe, keep your one good eye on the ball. Then I had another new thing happen, oh, four, five, six weeks ago, went to a yogurt shop for the first time since this has happened. Well, if you go to a yogurt shop, one of the things you're going to do is get a sample. You know how small those are? They're like the communion cups we pass out here. I mean, they're only about this big. And I, when I had two eyes, you go to pull that handle and it, it just comes squirting all over the place. You've got to stop it before it fills up that little tiny cup. And so, I mean, you've got to get under the spout and stuff. Well, with one eye, I stuck that cup, what I thought was under the thing, turned the handle on, and I knew I was in trouble when I felt my feet freezing, my sandals and everything else on the floor. Puddle of yogurt with nothing in the cup. Then about three weeks ago, I had another new thing happen. I'm back in the gym lifting weights, getting strong again, grateful for that. And uh, my staff hates it. I make them come grab the guns once in a while, and they get embarrassed. But 
but, but I'm fortunate. By God's grace, things are going well. But uh, a few Saturdays ago, met my partner in the gym. We couldn't work out on Fridays. We normally do. Went there Saturday morning. And so we're lifting and felt stronger, lifting heavier than I have since all this came about. And uh, I, I don't know what happened then or later on, perspiring and kind of wiped my eye. But anyway, left the gym, and I had grocery shopping to do. I'm the grocery shopper at our house. I love the grocery stores, food, and friends. So it's a great combination for me. It's a social hour. And went through there for uh, right after coming out of the gym. And I bumped into about a dozen of you and probably another dozen friends in the community. And one lady I, who was a dear uh, uh, mother of one of my son's best friends growing up. And I noticed everybody kind of looked at me, made eye contact, singular eye contact, and they look away. And uh, I thought, man, everybody's feeling sorry for me today. I, I don't know what the deal is. So I went home and as I'm packing the groceries, Bev came from the back and she looked at me and she gasped. And she said, what happened to your eye? I said, what are you talking about, babe? What happened to your eye? I don't know what you're talking about. Go look in the mirror right now. What happened to your eye? And I looked in the mirror and I guess from wiping the side or something, the whole thing was cockeyed pointing at me. <laughs> You ever see Young Frankenstein? That's exactly what I look like. I mean, it was... That's a new thing I don't want to go through again, I'm going to tell you that. But, but let me tell you, if you see me and my eye looks like that, tell me. It's like having something hanging from your nose and not telling your friend. I mean, it's just awful. New things, man, I've experienced them. They're coming at me left and right, and by God's grace, most of them are good, and we're adjusting and doing well. But when Jesus came, he said, I'm going to give you some new things, some new things coming down the pike. There's some new things that are going to happen to you. The new things I'm introducing to the world. If you look on the book and you have in your hand, I'm going to talk about three things out of context of Mark that Jesus is introducing. In fact, I'll give you the outline now so you don't have to worry about taking notes. He says, I, I, I am going to introduce you to a, or I'm going to, I'm going to found through you a new holy nation. I'm going to establish a new family, and I'm going to announce a new kingdom. So, so that's the outline right there. You got it? Some of you obsessive compulsive like I am about filling in blanks. He says, I, I am going to found a new holy nation. That's you. He says, I am going to establish a new family, and I'm announcing a new kingdom. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. A new nation, a new family, and a new kingdom. We all wrestle with new things at times and have new things come upon us. It may be diagnosis, it may be a relationship, it may be a purchase, it may be a new baby, it may be a new school for your kids, it may be a new trial, a new problem, or a new joy. Jesus is warning the religious leaders, I'm bringing something new to Israel, I'm bringing something new to you, I'm not going to reform the way things have been done in the past, I'm bringing new wine and I'm placing it in new wineskins. So what are those new things? We look at those three things that he introduced. Before we look at those things, let me give you the context. Beginning in verse 7, it says, Jesus, this is chapter 3, Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples. That's the Sea of Galilee. He, and the multitude followed him there. They came from Judea, from Jerusalem, from Adamea, from the, beyond the Jordan, the Transjordan region. They came from the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. And those cities may not make sense to us on a map, but he's saying they came from the north, the south, the east, and the west. And they came not only Jew, but Tyre and Sidon are coastal cities in the Gentile regions. They came Jew. They came uh, Gentile. They, they came uh, everybody, Tyre and Sidon were the Gentile areas. They came Jew. They came Gentile. They came from every direction on the map. The multitudes want to see Jesus, they want to touch Jesus, they want to be around Jesus because he is the miracle worker. 
And he told the disciples a boat should be ready. He's got a getaway boat ready for him. He says that a boat should be ready because of the multitude that they might not crowd him. They might not press into him. Literally, it says in the Greek language. For he had healed many, and with the result, all those who had afflictions pressed about him. That's the concept. They're pressing on him in order to touch him. They want to hear Jesus, see Jesus, touch Jesus. He's the miracle worker. And wherever the unclean spirits beheld him, the unclean spirits would be what? Demons. Whenever the demons, whenever these unclean spirits came around Jesus, they would fall down and they would cry out, you are the son of God. Underline that in your Bible. You are the son of God. And I want to point out one thing and then we'll look at these new things Jesus is introducing. What you see here is the demons theology is correct. You see, while the crowds may wonder about who Jesus is, and while the religious, communities may de- the religious leaders may debate about who Jesus is, and while the family, his family, may not understand who Jesus is, the demons knew exactly who Jesus is. They know exactly who Jesus is. You are what? The Son of God. In fact, if you fast forward to the book of James, James writes in James chapter 2 regarding the demons, you believe that there is one God, good, even the demons believe and shudder. The demons had great theology, the demons, the demons had great doctrine, they knew about Jesus, but they didn't know Jesus. In fact, if you want to look at the equation, knowledge does not equal salvation, knowledge, knowing about Jesus is not the same thing as knowing Jesus. That knowledge does not equal salvation. There are a lot of people in the world who have a knowledge about who Jesus is. Knowing about Jesus is not the same thing as knowing Jesus. You see, the demons look at him and said, you are the son of God. Their theology was right. It was correct. It was orthodox. They knew about Jesus, but they didn't know Jesus. You may know a lot about different athletes. You can give me all the stats on what they do and what they've accomplished and where they're from and uh, who they play for and the positions they're in. Knowing about them is not the same as knowing. Maybe you're into movie stars. You go to movies and you know the movie stars, who they are, the list of Academy Awards, Oscars, et cetera, et cetera. You know about them, but chances are you have never truly met them. Same thing can be true with presidents or whoever else. You may know about them, but it's not the same thing as knowing them. Knowing about Jesus is not the same thing as personally knowing him. The demons know about him. They shudder because they know who he is. But they haven't experienced a personal relationship with him. They haven't experienced forgiveness. Their theology is right in this arena. Not every arena, but in this arena. They know about Jesus, but they don't truly know him. Mark Twain took his daughter with him on a European tour one time. They met dignity. They met royalty. And uh, as you know, he was not a professed believer in Christ. And one day his daughter looked up at him. She was about 14 years old and said, Papa, it seems like you know everyone except God. How true that is in our world. It's possible for us. You come to TBC. You, you go through the motions. You've been baptized other places, maybe here, been confirmed, whatever. But do you really know Jesus? And then Matt Chandler is a pastor of the Village Church in Dallas. How many of you have heard of Matt Chandler? Some of you heard him preach. He wrote a book recently called The Explicit Gospel. In The Explicit Gospel, he writes this, I meet a lot of people swimming neck deep in the Christian culture who've been inoculated to Jesus. They have just enough of him not to want all of him. When that happens, what you have are people who've been conformed to a pattern of religious behavior but not been transformed by the Spirit of God. You see, we live in the buckle of the Bible belt. That's where Chandler is in Dallas as well. And it's possible to know a whole lot about Jesus, not not truly know him as your Savior. That's what we're talking about. Do you? Do you have just enough religion to be inoculated from him? That's what Jesus is standing against in his day. A lot of religious people, a 
a lot of religious people who think because they were born into the family of Abraham, because they've got Jewish blood flowing through their bodies, they're okay. And he's saying, you're really not. I've come to do something different. I've I've come to do something new. So the first thing he did, he founded a holy nation. Founded a holy nation. This is a nation without borders, a nation without boundaries. This is a nation that's comprised of the church, basically. In fact, what we should see here is Jesus goes to a mountain, verse 13. He went up to the mountain. And he summoned those he himself wanted, and they came to him, and he appointed 12. Number one, they might be with him. Number two, to send them out. Number three, to have authority to cast out demons. He said, I want you to be in my presence. I want you to proclaim who I am, and then I'm going to give you power to do so. It's a great outline. You teach a class or a lesson, there's an outline for you to teach in Bible study sometime. Jesus came so the disciples could be in his presence, so they could preach of who he was, and so or proclaim who he was, and he'd give them the power to do it and so you have presence you've got proclamation and you've got power right there and jesus summoned the 12 is there anything significant in the number 12 in the nation of israel's history there were 12 tribes of israel 12 tribes of israel the nation of israel was comprised of 12 tribes so the nation, if you want to talk about the nation of Israel, it was comprised of these 12 tribes. Here is the Messiah of Israel calling 12 men to lead him in his ministry, not the religious leaders to lead, not the religious leaders of Judaism, but common men. He calls to a mountain to do something new and to do something radical. And this new thing is to be this holy nation, this holy people. Say, Gary, where do you get that? Well, later on, Jesus would say this, Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Jesus is saying that I'm taking the kingdom away from just the Jewish people. I'm opening it up to all people, all Gentiles. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. And he says, now the kingdom is open to all. Later on, Peter, the disciple, would say, But you, talking about the church, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So therefore, we are a holy nation set apart by God. It's not a nation with boundaries. It's not a nation with borders. Or a nation with borders. It transcends all of those things. See, the problem is Israel had been chosen by God to be a light of the world. Jesus came to his own, but the scriptures say in John 1, his own knew him what? Not. They rejected the Messiah in his kingdom. And Jesus came and said, I'm going to give you new wine and new wineskins. I'm not going to reform your legalistic system. I'm not going to take your rules and regulations, be an appendage to, an attachment of. I'm going to make you a new people. So Jesus calls the 12 disciples in Israel, the home of the 12 tribes, not to reform the nation, but to begin this new nation. As Peter calls it, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So does does this mean that God is finished with Israel? No, he's not. No, he's not. I I believe God still has a work to do, tremendous work in Israel. That's why we watch what happens in Israel, in the ancient Near East, and things around the Middle or in the Middle East. God is not finished. Today, the chosen people of God are his church. The chosen people of God are his church. What do Israeli Jewish people need today more than anything else? They need Jesus. As you know, Bev and I have had the privilege to lead three different tours to Israel, folks out of TBC and Friends. And as we've done that, our guide has been the same person. He and I team teach when we go to these places, Eris Bar-David. Eris is a Messianic Jew. He was born in Israel. He grew up in the only Christian kibbutz in Israel. He's Messianic, means he believes in the Messiah, Jesus. He's Jew. He has Jewish blood flowing through his veins. He's 100% Jewish. And whenever we go, Eris says, pray for my people, pray for the land of Israel, pray that we will come to know Christ as the Messiah. 
Israel's a secular nation like we're a secular nation. The chosen people are God's people. But God's not finished with Israel. He's going to do a work with Israel. You can read about it. We'll look at it when we look at prophecy. Paul, a Jew, a Pharisee, understood that when he write, understood that when he writes in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Who needs the salvation offered by the gospel? First the Jew, then the Gentile. And God in his grace has exposed us to the gospel. Knowing that we are called to be a holy nation should elicit three responses to us. A response of praise, a response of thanksgiving, and a response of, of, uh, of uh, action. First of all, it should elicit from us a response of praise. We should be grateful that God has included us in his kingdom, in his nation. We should be grateful. should give us praise to a God who sent his son, our Savior, to be a servant, to give his life for many. In Mark 10.45, it says Christ came not to serve, not, not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom. He is the servant that Isaiah talked about. Isaiah says, here's my servant whom I upheld, my chosen one whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will make you, I will, I will keep you, I will make you to be a covenant for the people, a light to the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, free captives from prisons, release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. The moment you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, your eyes are opened, you are set free from prison, and you are released from the dungeon of darkness. Amen? Marvelous good news. Marvelous good news. Christ says, I come to do something new. New wine and new wineskins. The first new thing I'm going to do is form a new nation. It's a holy nation. It's a nation without boundaries, a nation without borders. It's a nation whose allegiance is to the gospel and to Jesus Christ alone. That's what Christ came to establish. And we as the church are that. We are blessed with that. We should have praise for that. We should have thanksgiving for that. That the believers of every nation, the believers of every nation will gather together around his throne. See, we are citizens not of here, but we are citizens according to Philippians 3.20. We are citizens of what? Heaven. We're citizens of heaven. Our passport should read heaven. Now, I get that blue U.S. passport. And Stephen talked about gone through customs and stuff the other day. Actually, the moment you come to know Christ, you receive a, a different passport. You're the citizen of a different nation, of a different kingdom, serving a different king. And you are a citizen of heaven, according to Paul, who was a Jew who recognized and understood this. God's not finished with them. God's going to do something with the nation of Israel. We'll see. And finally, we should have praise. We should thank him. We should take action. I like what, Chuck, like what Chuck Swindoll says on this. He says, if you proclaim to be a citizen of heaven, don't live like a local. You hear what he's saying? If you proclaim to be a citizen of heaven, live like one who belongs there. Don't live like a person of this world. Don't be attached to the things of this world. Malcolm Muggeridge says, the ultimate disaster that can befall us as believers is to feel ourselves at home on earth. He's right. This isn't our home. We're merely aliens passing through. Max Licato says, dread of death ends when you know heaven is your true home. In all my air travels, I've never seen one passenger weep when the plane landed because they didn't want to get off. No one clings to the armrest and begs, don't make me leave, don't make me leave, let me stay here and eat more peanuts. We're willing to exit the plane because a plane is not our permanent mailing address, nor is this world. We are citizens of heaven who our Savior lives. And we should say amen, amen, and amen. He not only 
introduces us to a, or founds a new nation, he establishes a new family. If you take a look at verses 20 and 21, he talks about this new family, or he'll begin the talk, introduce the topic. In 20 and 21 of chapter 3, it says, He came home, home to Jesus' nail Capernaum on the northern sea of Galilee, and the multitude gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people, referring to his family, I believe, heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he's lost his mind. They look at Jesus and say he's crazy. His own family there can be friends. It can be those in the area. It's, it's a word that uh, it can refer to extended family as well. But perhaps his family came from Nazareth, walked 30 miles to Capernaum where he now is. They came there and said, he's got problems. They want to seize him and they want to silence him. They want to seize him and they want to silence him. They say he, he, he's so busy and, and he's doing all this stuff he doesn't even eat. I'm going to tell you, if I get so busy and quit eating, my family think I'm crazy too the way I love to eat. But they look at Jesus and say, well, whatever's going on here, he's lost his senses. And then Mark uses a literary device four times in his gospel. He introduces a topic, and then he places between uh, going back to that topic either uh, an event in the life of Christ or teaching. And, and so he lists this event in the life of Christ having to do with the scribes, and then he goes back to the topic he introduced in verse 31. He's going to talk about family. And in verse 31, it says, His mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him, and they called out, and a multitude was sitting around him, and they said, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And answering them, he said, Who are my, brother, who are, are my mother and my brothers? That sounds like a strange answer, doesn't it? Who are these people? And looking about those who were sitting there, and you can almost see Jesus pointing. The scriptures don't say pointing. You almost see it. Behold, my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, that's my brother and my sister and my mother. Uh, what's Jesus doing here? What's Jesus doing here? Well, the first thing you have to see is before Jesus does anything, he's rejected. He's rejected by those closest to him. He's crazy. We're going to seize him, and we're going to silence him. Some of you know the pain of rejection. Some of you know what it's like to be rejected by those closest to you. Some of you have been rejected by a mom or a dad. You've had a spouse that traded you in for a younger model. Maybe your kids have forgotten that you exist. Your grandkids are only pictures in your wallet, and you never get to see them. Or maybe your parents are sources of great pain or hurt in your life rather than joy. Jesus is your fellow sojourner. He knew what it was to be rejected by those closest to him. I've used a story of Elizabeth Barrett Browning before. If you know her story, she is one of the greatest authors in English literature, and we received some of her writings through great pain. See, when she married Robert Browning, her parents disowned her because they didn't approve of him. And so she began to write letters almost every week of her life. Not every week, but almost every week. She wrote letters of love seeking reconciliation with her parents. They never once replied. Almost 10 years after her marriage, a big box was delivered to her porch. She brought it in and opened the box. The box contained every letter she had written to her parents unopened. They'd not read a single letter she had written in almost 10 years. You can almost feel the rejection. 
in her heart from her parents. Some of you know what that feels like because someone else has rejected you in life. Friends, family, loved ones. Jesus, his own people, looked at him and said, he's crazy. He's crazy. Seize him and shut him up. Jesus knows your pain. But then when you come to these sandwich verses on the end of the sandwich, if you will, the bread on the end or whatever, probably an illustration I'll need to use right now, lunchtime. What is he doing? He says, behold, your mothers and brothers are looking for you. He says, who are my mothers and brothers? Well, we know that Jesus loved the family. He's not saying diss your family. But he's making a greater statement than that. He's saying your family, your true family, are those related to you spiritually. Your true family are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, in our culture, I mean, we kind of wince at that. But in this culture, that was scandalous. The words of Christ are scandalous. In the ancient Near Eastern culture, to speak as Jesus speaks was really pushing new wine into new wineskins. You see, the family was of utmost importance in that day and age. For us as Westerners, we typically move away from our parents and we establish our new family unit. And it may be in a different town, a different city. We have different relationships. In Jesus' world, this was scandalous because the family bond was tight and lifelong. You see, they often lived in the same house their whole lives. The family unit would also often be a business unit, and they shared everything in common. Young men apprenticed under their dads, and whatever the dad did, they did not always, but often. And so the bond was extremely strong, and it was a fabric that could not be undone. If you began to unweave that fabric in any way, you would be considered not only disloyal to your family, but disloyal to Israel and disloyal to the God of Israel. And Jesus says, meet your new family. To that audience in that day and age, that was new and radical. What Jesus is doing, he's taking all the symbols of Israel and he's saying, I trump everything. The gospel is allegiance to me. He would say the same thing that's recorded in Luke chapter 14. Unless you hate your mother and your brother and your sisters, you cannot be my disciple. He doesn't mean literally hate them. He's saying your love for me pale, or your, your love for them pales in comparison for your love for me. And unless you pick up your cross and deny yourself daily, you cannot be my disciple. Unless you give all your possessions to me, you cannot be my disciples. What Jesus is saying, he's saying the spiritual relationship with me trumps every other relationship in the world, period. And the family was one of the greatest symbols in Israel's history. I mean, it's right up there with observing the Sabbath and the traditions of the law because they felt like being loyal to your ancestral heritage, being loyal to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and being a Jew meant that they were part of the covenant and therefore they didn't have to repent. And John comes with a gospel of repentance, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And they thought because they had the right blood, they were okay. And the book of Galatians says, that's not the case. You have to rightly repent before God. So he says, here's a new family. By the way, we're so grateful for the spiritual bonds that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. I love, I've got two sisters and I I love my sisters and my parents live with us. I love my parents. They're all believers. And so we have that bond as well. If you have brothers and sisters or parents or kids who are unbelievers, you know there's something that you don't have in common together. That's what Jesus is talking about. 
Hey, let me give you some good news, though. Let me give you some good news. This comes full circle. You see, if you fast forward to the book of Acts, one of the most amazing things that you read in Acts chapter 1, this is after the resurrection ascension of Christ, that people are waiting for the Spirit to come. Jesus has said you should, be, uh, you should wait for the Spirit to come. And so they're in the upper room praying. You know what it says in Acts chapter 1? Many people miss this. Acts chapter 1, verse 14, underlined in your Bible. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women. There was also Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his whom? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? The brothers of Jesus said, he's crazy. Lock him up. Silence him. Get him away. But after you've been with a resurrected man, everything changes. Everything changes. And even his brothers, one of the greatest apologetics or defenses of the resurrection, changed lives of disciples were a bunch of cowards who all of a sudden became courageous and also that the family of Jesus would follow after him. And so the resurrection is true because when you see a resurrected man, everything changes. And even those closest to him said, indeed, he's the Savior. Now, I'm going to tell you, if anybody could find fault in Jesus, anybody would know Jesus is not who he claimed to be. He's not the Messiah. He's not the Son of God. Who would it be? Those that grew up with him. Hey, I've got two sisters. They can give you all the dirt on me. I can guarantee you that. And your parents, they know everything about you. And the scriptures say, look at him. Even his brothers and his mothers followed after him. And I say, to God be the glory, great things he's done. Jesus says, I'm going to give you new wine and new wineskins. I'm going to found a new holy nation. I'm going to establish a new family. And I'm also announcing a new kingdom. See, that, that announcement began earlier. We saw in Mark chapter 1, it says, uh, we talked about John the Baptist being the forerunner, proclaiming that one comes after him, and forerunners proclaim royalty in that day and age. And when Jesus came in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, it says Jesus, Jesus was preaching the gospel. The time was fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In Mark chapter 4, the word kingdom is used four times. And so we see Christ is over and over talking about this kingdom. He's introducing a new kingdom. He is the king. We are his subjects. He is the king. We follow after him. He is the king. We bow down and we worship him he introduces a kingdom a nation without boundaries without borders it's everything that he wants to do but the problem is they were expecting a different type of king and a different type of kingdom the jewish people were they wanted a kingdom they wanted a kingdom that was of this world christ came to introduce the kingdom of another world they wanted a king who would rid them of the yoke of Roman slavery. They wanted a king who would transform Jerusalem into the hub of the world in that day. They wanted a king who would overthrow with political, with uh, military might and political right everything that was against them in that day. But Jesus came offering a kingdom. He entered through brokenness and repentance. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. They looked for somebody who would free him of this world, free him of Roman rule. And all of a sudden he says, hey, if you follow after me, you enter my kingdom through repentance and through brokenness. It's a different kind of kingdom. And so they reason in their mind, he can't be the promised Messiah. He has no power. He has no army. He has no might. He has no right. He's not even accepted in Jerusalem, much less the world. But they had a problem. You know what the problem was? The problem was Jesus was doing the supernatural. 
He's doing the supernatural. We already read about him casting out demons and freeing these people. And in Mark chapter 3, verse 22, it says, The scribes who were coming down from Jerusalem, and by the way, Jerusalem was a 90-mile walk in that day and age. They want to find out about this man, Jesus. They were saying he's possessed by Beelzebub. Beelzebub means uh, Lord of the Flies, Lord of the Filth. They're saying he, he's possessed by, it became known as the, the, the head of Satan himself. He's, he, he's possessed by Beelzebub. He's possessed by Satan. He cast out demons by the ruler of demons. Now, I told you in the first message on Mark that Mark is the shortest gospel, is the earliest gospel, and Mark is like a man. Now, a wife asks a man, how does, how'd your day go, honey? He responds, fine. And he's done. Okay? And that's kind of how Mark is. Mark is as short as the gospel. He's brief. He doesn't say a lot. So you go to the other gospels to fill in the blanks. And if you look at the context of this in Luke chapter 11, write down Luke 11:14. it tells us the context of this confrontation. What happens is there is a mute man who is demon-possessed. And Christ walks up to the demon-possessed mute man, and he casts out the demon, and the guy who couldn't talk starts talking. The supernatural has happened. Everybody sees it that's gathered there. There are multitudes there. This guy couldn't talk, and now all of a sudden his tongue is free, and he's talking. The supernatural has taken place. So here are these people saying he can't be the Messiah. He, he can't be the one ushering in this kingdom because uh, he, he's not, he doesn't have political might or, or political right, military might. And so they see this work and say, well, he's doing something that's different, obviously. He's doing the supernatural. And so they say he's of Satan. Why do they say that? Well, if you're doing supernatural, there are only two supernatural realms. There's the realm of God and the realm of Satan. And so they look at what Jesus is doing and say, obviously it's supernatural, and their, and their logic is, is, is flawed, but, but it makes sense, actually. He, he does the supernatural. He's not of us and we're of God, so he has to be of Satan. That's our logic. I mean... We can't say he's of us because he stands against us, and so he's obviously doing the supernatural. There are two realms. If we say he's of God, it means we're not. If, we see, if, if, if he's working the works of God, we're not following him, and we have to follow him. And so they say he's obviously of Satan. So Christ, with impeccable logic and wisdom, he speaks to them in parables, verse 23. How can Satan cast out Satan? Why would he do that? If Satan possesses a man, if his demons possess a man, he'd leave that demon in there. This makes no sense. And if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom won't stand. And if a house is divided against itself, the house won't stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself, he's divided. And he can't stand. He's finished. Why would Satan fight Satan? Guys, you're right. The work is supernatural. But it's not Satan who's doing it. It makes no sense. And in the second parable, he says, he changes topics. He says, but no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first finds a strong man and he'll plunder it. He's saying, I am stronger than the strong man. I've got more power and therefore I trump Satan. Then in some verses that people have really confused over the years, he says, Truly I say, all sin shall be forgiven the sons of men, whoever blasphemies they utter, whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. He's, a guilty, he's guilty of eternal sin. 
called the unpardonable sin by some. I've been asked many times over the 30-plus years I've been here, what is the unpardonable sin if I've committed it? Can I repent of it? Does it still exist today? What exactly is unpardonable sin? When you look at the context of what's happening here, the unpardonable sin is rejection of the work of the Spirit by attributing the works of Jesus to Satan. When you continually reject the Spirit of God and his conviction of salvation and the work of Jesus and you attribute it to Satan rather than Christ and you reject the Spirit of God's conviction unto salvation and seeing the works of Christ that culminated in the cross, you're headed to Christless eternity. That's what it means. Can you repent? You can repent of anything. But when you continue to reject Christ and you attribute his works to Satan, and you die, the unpardonable sin has been committed. And there's no hope on the other side of death on this side. Pretty interesting, as I look at this passage, those who you would think to be inside the kingdom are outside. See, you would think every Jewish leader is inside. Every religious leader, they're the religious guys, but they're outside of the kingdom Christ offers. You would think his parents or his mother, Joseph, is not mentioned, so we assume he's dead by now. You would think those closest to him be inside, but they're really rejecting him right now. And those you would think on the outside, the uneducated Galileans, fishermen, tax collector, Matthew, Levi, Simon the Zealot, you would think they'd be on the outside, but they're on the inside because they're following Jesus. And so Christ comes and he changes everything. And he asks us the question, are you on the inside or the outside? Which are you? Which are you, an outsider or an insider? You see, the religious leaders thought they were on the inside. They thought they were on the inside because they had been circumcised, because they went to the temple, because they had Jewish blood in their veins. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Hebrews 11 says you've got to come by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And those you would think were on the outside, some fishermen, Jesus says, I summoned them up so they could be in my presence, proclaim who I am with the power I give them. So those you would think on the outside are really on the inside. See, it's not by position, status, that you come to know Christ. It's through brokenness and repentance only. We have a, we have a program called Celebrate Recovery on Tuesday nights. And uh, it's a great program. We've got anywhere from 80 to 100 plus people that come every Tuesday. And it's for anybody with uh, hang-ups, habits, addictions that uh, you'd like to work on. And uh, the courts actually send people to us now. So it's really a, it's a phenomenal ministry. I try and walk through every Tuesday night, shake as many hands as I can. Several Wednesdays ago, actually several months ago now, uh, most of the, over half of the people that attend Tuesday nights don't attend TBC. So they come from our community, come from different places. And so on a Tuesday night uh, several months ago, I was in a hurry, headed to a meeting, and we feed our folks, our friends in CR, we feed them dinner every Tuesday night. And uh, I was in a hurry, gone to a meeting, knew I wouldn't have time for dinner, and uh, they were having pizza, so there were boxes of pizza stacked on the table in the hallway out there. And uh, as, as I walked by, there was one dude who I didn't recognize. He obviously didn't recognize me, and uh, the pizzas were not open. There was nobody else there. So I went up and uh, opened a box of pizza, got a napkin, and snagged two pieces of pizza and put on a napkin. 
closed the box up, and the dude was in charge of securing the pizzas. <laughs> and he looked at me, and I quote, he said, who the blank, I won't quote that, do you think you are? And I looked at him and said, you know, I am so sorry. Uh, I can see you're here watching over the pizzas, and I should have asked permission to get them, and my fault. He said, well, the line will form in a few minutes. You get behind it. I said, by the way, I, I'm the pastor at Temple Bible Church. <laughs> he said, here, take the whole box. <laughs> Literally what he did. You see, I, I thought I had the status. I thought I had the authority. I thought I had the right. But I really didn't. And uh, I was really on the outside, but I thought I was on the inside. And there are a lot of people like that in our world. I mean, they're born in America. They're good people. They go to church, but they don't really know Jesus. Do you know about him, or do you know him? Are you on the inside or the outside? Father, thank you for a Savior, a suffering servant, who frees us from prison, who gives us light when we're in darkness, and who sets captives free. Thank you for letting us be a part of this new holy nation. Thank you for the new family we're a part of, brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for the kingdom that you've established. Kingdom without boundaries, without borders, a kingdom that's entered through through repentance and brokenness. If you're here today and you're not sure if you've come before the king and trusted him and him alone for salvation, I invite you to do that right now. He gives you this great opportunity to be a part of everything he makes new, including yourself. Scriptures say you become a new creation in Christ. Old things pass away, new things come the minute you trust him. Would you do that? And maybe you know Christ, but you're living like a local. You're not living like a citizen of heaven. You slept with somebody this week you're not married to. You're looking at stuff you shouldn't be looking at. You're talking about people behind their backs. You're dishonoring the reputation and name of Christ at work because you're not working the way you should. I, I don't know what it is. Maybe you're just distant from God. He'll do a new thing in your heart. If you'll come to him, trust him, honor him. Walk with him, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the new wine you pour into new wineskins and letting us be part of that. In your name we pray. Amen. And you're dismissed.